Well, turn with me for a moment to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That will be just our starting point this evening. We're continuing this evening the third mini-series in our lengthy study of the millennium. And just as a reminder, you know, I mentioned in the opening message of this entire study that we're really building a pyramid with lots and lots of big stones as the foundation so that when we actually begin looking in detail at specific topics and Bible passages related to the millennium, it will be absolutely second nature to you. In later messages, we're going to examine in detail several dozen key millennial passages, one at a time, and even a number of surveys of entire Bible books, because there are some Bible books you almost have to consider them all as a unit because they have so much information. In the last little mini-series, I proved to you the fallacy of amillennialism, that the kingdom is now somehow, there isn't a literal kingdom of Christ on earth. And now, to take that more positive direction, I want to give you great confidence in what you believe. And so, I'm very confident in all of you who make up Grace Bible Church, that you want to understand the Word of God as deeply as possible, that you have abandoned a purely sentimental use of Scripture to just give you emotions. And so one of my goals in this series so far is is the hope that the coming millennium is so real, so palpable to you, that it just becomes a part of your daily life. You can almost taste it. You can see it and live in anticipation of it. And it's sad to me that you can ask the average Christian in America, you know, what, what is the end of your life about? What is the end of all things about? And, and basically the best answer you can get is, well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And that's true and that's wonderful. But isn't there so much more than that? There's so much more. And so I, I, I am burdened that you have a, a glorious, three-dimensional, full-color view of what is coming and so in this little mini-series, these four messages, I'm examining what I'm calling premillennial foundations. And I said last time there's two significant questions it's reasonable for us to ask. The first question is, who else believed that Christ is coming to physically reign over a little literal kingdom on earth? Who else believed that? And how do we arrive at these conclusions? Did we just make this up? Did, did our belief in a coming kingdom of Christ on earth just sort of happen in the last century or two? And so really, as I said, I'm doing two messages in two parts each. And last time we began with the legacy of premillennialism. And we're going to continue that tonight. The following two messages will be the methods of premillennialism. When I say the legacy of premillennialism, I, I said last time I was trying to avoid using the H word, history, because I know how that makes some of us feel. But let me give you an illustration that I think might be helpful in the very early days, literally days of the 20th century, when the charismatic movement suddenly took off and Pentecostalism suddenly took off, the big selling point was, this is something brand new. We don't ever want to sell theology as new. We want to sell theology as ancient, as something that all the saints have always believed. And so my goal in this, as I've said, is simply to show you that what you believe, what our church believes, what we believe is old. It's very old. And you have multitudes of brothers and sisters literally over thousands of years 
that have believed, they would read the doctrinal statement of Grace Bible Church and say, yes, you guys got it right. They've believed this as well. And so just as our jumping off point, look again with me at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The Apostle Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul tells them to stand firm in the apostles' teaching, that what the apostles taught has not changed and it will continue on. And I'm going to show that as we go this evening. And so to just give you a a little taste of the legacy of premillennialism, last time we started in the modern era, we began working our way back in time. And we looked at premillennialism in the church and whether or not there's this hard stop or a, a beginning point somewhere that would indicate that premillennialism is somehow a new doctrine that's extra-biblical, that's outside of our Bible. We looked at premillennialism in England in the 17th and 18th centuries. We looked at premillennialism in the 19th to the 21st centuries. Uh, We looked at premillennialism in the American colonies. We looked at premillennialism in the second generation after the Great Reformation. I, I got a couple of those out of order, but we worked backwards in time last time. And we saw an important application for evangelism. We learned that the early church was extremely motivated by their premillennialism to proclaim to the lost that they needed to come to faith in Christ in order to become part of the coming kingdom. That, that their gospel was not come to faith in Christ so that when you die you can go to heaven. Their gospel was come to faith in Christ so that when you die you can go to heaven and you can return with Christ with all of His glorious ones and be on this earth when Christ is reigning. That was their gospel proclamation. At the end of our time this evening I'll have another key application to show I believe even further the incredible value of the premillennial understanding of Scripture. Let me just remind us briefly, why does the history, I'll go ahead and use the word, why does the history or the legacy of premillennialism, why does it even matter? Who cares? Well, I mentioned last time that Cornelius P. Venema, the amillennial theologian and the author of what many consider the premier systematic theology on amillennialism, is called the, uh, the promise of the future, he wrote this concerning the history of dispensationalism, which is connected at the hip with premillennialism. He said this, quote, The story of modern dispensationalism begins around 1825 and is associated with an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby. He was a clergyman in the Church of England. I mentioned last time Darby was the eventual founder of the Plymouth Brethren. Venema then cites C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible, as a major factor in spreading the belief in dispensationalism and And Venom is correct in the things that he says, but I pointed that out because that's generally a pattern with almost across the board amillennial explanations of premillennialism, that that what we believe started in 1825. And of course, the obvious conclusion to that is, well, you must be wrong because it started so relatively recently when we talk about theology. Well, let's find out. Let's just keep going back in time. Now we get to the era from the death of the apostles to the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. That era is called the 
Antinicene age, not anti, A-N-T-I, as in against, but anti, A-N-T-E, Nicene age, just means before the Council of Nicaea. And so we could talk about premillennialism in the Antinicene era. And this would, we could approximately say from 100 A.D. with the death of the Apostle John to 325, the date of the Council of Nicaea. That's when we received and saw the Nicene Creed, very helpful to the church. This was a time of strengthening the church on key doctrines of the faith. Battlegrounds for various theological truths were, were being fought. And during the Antonicene period, the most common belief concerning the end times and God's plan for Israel and the nations was premillennialism. That wasn't the name they used. They had other names, but that's what was, the belief was. One theologian named Matthew Bryce Irvin, he noted that during this time there wasn't a single known writing, not one, from an Orthodox Christian leader espousing any other view of the millennium. Not one. Now, I think that's a pretty hard argument to make because that would mean you've read everything, but the fact that they're that hard to find, we know at least that it's extremely rare. And so I just want to introduce you to some of your brothers in the faith and what they believed in the time right after the apostles. How about Barnabas? Barnabas is the author of the epistle of Barnabas. Tradition identifies the author as an Alexandrian Jew living during the reigns of Emperor Trajan and Hadrian. His name may have actually been Barnabas, and some even argue this is the Barnabas of the New Testament. It's probably named after the Barnabas of the Bible just to give it authority. That wasn't a, a considered a bad practice. That was just something that people did. But no matter who the author is, what we do know about the epistle of Barnabas, it's not a Bible book, obviously, but we do know it was written at about 100 A.D., like five years after the book of Revelation. Revelation is finished. It's circulating among the churches, and now the epistle of Barnabas shows up. This work describes a belief which was actually common in the early church, and that belief was that since God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, that there would be 6,000 years of history followed by 1,000 years of rest of Christ's reign on earth. And we wouldn't hold to that because probably slightly more than 6,000 years since creation has passed. But their belief was grounded in several key components. The first one is they believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, And remember, when the epistle of Barnabas was written, Revelation is hot off the presses, and the author may have been able to even speak to the Apostle John himself. They also would say that the millennium would begin when Jesus returned to destroy Antichrist, and not one second before, that when Christ returns, he would judge all the unbelievers on the earth, and he would change creation to a degree for an intermediate time. That's going back to 100 AD, the epistle of Barnabas. How about Polycarp? Polycarp was born around 69 AD. As a young man, he was a student of the Apostle John himself. Eventually, he was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. He was martyred by the Romans at the age of 86. And he left behind only one writing that's known, and that's his epistle to the Philippian church. But in one section, he affirmed some important facts concerning premillennialism. He said that saints will reign with Christ after their resurrection, 
He quotes 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the righteous will not inherit, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he equates this period after the resurrection with the kingdom. Everything he talks about concerning future things is consistent only with premillennialism. This is important because Polycarp learned from whom? From the Apostle John. How about Papias? Papias is extremely important to premillennialism. He also was a student of the Apostle John. He was bishop of the church at Heriopolis in Phrygia. He was martyred at about the same time as Polycarp. But Papias is quoted extensively by other church leaders because Papias was friends with several people who interacted with Jesus and the apostles. In other words, he knew those who knew. And so here's some of those who quote Papias. Eusebius of Caesarea was an early 4th century church historian. He cited Papias as stating that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the saints, and this is when the personal reign of Christ on earth will begin. Irenaeus provided a quote from Papias from the fourth of the fifth books, five books that Papias wrote. And this is interesting, and, and just take this with a grain of salt. This is not scripture, but this is an extra-biblical history of an account between Judas and Jesus. This is just simply what Irenaeus said, Papias heard happened. That when Jesus was speaking of great things to come in the kingdom on earth, Judas, quote, did not give credit to them and put the question, how then can things about to bring forth so abundantly be wrought by the Lord? In other words, isn't this going to happen now? Because it sure doesn't look like it. And Papias writes that Jesus answered, they who shall come to these times shall see. Now, obviously, that's not on the level of Scripture. We're not going to give it uh, that level of inspiration at all. But this is an account given by Papias, friend of the apostles, that Judas doubted the millennial blessings, not because he didn't believe the same things Jesus did, but he wanted it to happen now. He wanted it to come in at this very moment, and he didn't see that happening. He saw things like Jesus uh, uh, humbling himself and presenting himself to be arrested, and Judas gave up. He gave up. And Papias made note of his interactions with the apostles. Papias took notes, and he made a list from his firsthand knowledge of the apostles that Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, and Matthew were all pre-millennial from his conversations with them. How about Justin Martyr? He lived from about 114 to 165. He was a Gentile follower of Plato's philosophy until coming to faith in Christ. And this is important because you recall that those who followed Plato generally believed that the physical is bad and that that life is aiming toward the non-physical, being relieved of our bodies. And, and we've said in previous messages how that lines up actually quite well with amillennialism. And so it's significant that Justin Martyr became what one theologian called, quote, the most overtly premillennial anti-Nicene church father. Justin's famous statement on the millennium says this, For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem 
which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. This is pretty strong language. He said, if you don't believe in the millennium, you're a blasphemer. I'm not going to go that far, but that's what Justin Martyr said. He believed that the true Christian believed not only in a physical resurrection of all saints, but of a millennium to follow centered in the rebuilt Jerusalem. And Justin cites extensively from Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, that this is speaking not of the church age and not of the final state, but of a time in between, an intermediate kingdom. This is important because amillennialists will continue to say that we who are premillennial only have one text about the millennium, Revelation 20. Justin Martyr would say differently. How about Irenaeus? This dear brother was a bishop of the church that is now Lyon, France, and he was a student of Polycarp, so he's one generation removed from the Apostle John. His grand work called Against Heresies was written as a case-closing argument against the lies of Gnosticism. One historian noted that, quote, the last five chapters of Book 5 are so favorable to premillennialism that they were left out of the Latin translations in the medieval era by the doctrine's opponents, only to be supplied again in 1575. In other words, Irenaeus' writings were so clearly premillennial that when Catholics were translating his work, they left out five chapters because it messed up their whole theology. Irenaeus commented on Jesus' parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, which outlines rewards for the faithful. And Irenaeus wrote that these rewards will happen during the millennial kingdom, which he saw, like the epistle of Barnabas, as sort of a, a Sabbath to all of history. And he wrote that the kingdom of God will be on earth with Christ reigning after the resurrection of the saints and that Christ will renew the creation. Now, he took an entire theology of premillennialism simply from Psalm 104.30, you renew the face of the ground. And he saw a, a blossoming theology from that. By the way, one of the reasons Irenaeus spent so much time defending premillennialism, it concerned a much greater issue, a much bigger issue. One of the main purposes of his huge work against heresies was to stand against the spiritualizing of Scripture, the allegorizing of the Bible. That was his point. And so he taught from Isaiah 6, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 65, to show that even just in Isaiah, there are numerous prophecies that can only be fulfilled when the righteous are ruling the earth. He wrote extensively on these passages. He took them literally and he came to the conclusion that the blessings on this earth in that age will be unimaginable compared to the suffering and the injustice which we endure in this era. His strongest statement against allegorizing of Scripture uses bodily resurrection as an example. And listen to this. He says, quote, Nothing is capable of being allegorized, but all things are steadfast and true and substantial, having been made by God for righteous men's enjoyment. For as it is God truly who raises up man, so also does man truly rise from the dead and not allegorically. For since there are real men, there also must be a real establishment. What is he saying? He's saying, if you're going to spiritualize a coming kingdom of Christ, then you have to spiritualize our resurrection. It's just an allegory. Well, we would never want to believe that. How exciting would that be? You will be raised from the dead, allegorically speaking. That's not hopeful. 
very, very strong in his argument. How about Tertullian? Tertullian lived during the second century and into the third century. He wrote the oldest known theology and formal exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity in his book Against Praxius. He wrote of a future kingdom on earth, which is not the church age, and this kingdom would commence after the resurrection of the church age saints. Very, very consistent with what we believe. Antichrist would be defeated by Christ. That would inaugurate the millennium. Now, we would disagree with some of Tertullian's assessments, such as his belief that the resurrected saints would occupy heaven during the thousand-year reign of Christ, and New Jerusalem would come at the beginning of the millennium, not the end. But, but the reason he came to those conclusions is he was so focused on the millennium that he took Revelation 21 and 22 as also being about the millennium and not the final state. So his, his exuberance led him to those conclusions. But regardless of those small disagreements, Tertullian was staunch in his teaching that the saints would be resurrected, Christ would return, and that Christ would be defeated, and an intermediate kingdom would be set up on earth. We can go a little farther into history. A man by the name of Methodius. Methodius lived from 260 to 312, and he was the bishop of Olympus and then Patara in Lycia, and eventually in the area of Phoenicia and Tyre. He was martyred as a believer in Christ, either in Greece or in Syria, and he was an absolute critic of the allegorical method of interpreting Scripture. Now, by now, you're beginning to have some competition because more and more are starting to say, well, Scripture really means, has some deeper spiritual meaning that we can't see. The allegorical method was beginning to gain some traction, and Methodius stood hard against this. And he used his eschatology to stand hard against any sort of allegorical method. He taught that the millennium would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish feast of tabernacles, of tents, which was partly for the purpose of celebrating the fact that God dwells with His people. I think it's important to note that the Feast of Tabernacles is highlighted in Zechariah 14 as being commanded to occur every year after the return of Christ. So Methodius held to this as well. We could get to a man by the name of Lactantius. Lactantius takes us all the way now to the Council of Nicaea. He lived from 240 to 325, died the same year as the Council of Nicaea. He was a theologian and he was an advisor to Emperor Constantine, the emperor who brought about the Edict of Milan, which ended the persecution of the church for a time. But Lactantius wrote his magnum opus called Divine Institutes. By the way, it's the first example of a comprehensive systematic theology on all areas of theology. And having died the same year as the First Council of Nicaea, he's the last major church father in the Antonicene era, and he was strongly premillennial. And you might wonder, if you read some of Lactantius, which I know you're just dying to do, he wrote that he's hesitant to provide an explanation about the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. He, he writes this early in his writings. Why was he hesitant? Well, here's why. I'll give you a quote. Quote, These are the things which are spoken of by the prophets as about to happen hereafter. But I have not considered it necessary to bring forward their testimonies in words. Here's his hesitation. Since it would be an endless task. In other words, he wrote that the Bible is so filled with the millennium that where do you even begin? 
which gives me great comfort in how many messages I'm preaching on this series, by the way. But having said that, he wrote extensively on the millennium. It's like he ends the Antonicene era with a giant exclamation point about the millennium. He covered things like the ecology of the earth during the reign of Christ. He covered the imprisonment of Satan during the millennium. He covered the reign of resurrected saints along with Christ. He covered the final resurrection, the final judgment of all the lost of all the ages that happens directly after the millennium. Now, I just gave you a little sample. I'm not going to torture you with more and more of these. But others would include Hippolytus, Cyprian, Nepos, Victorinus, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Hermas, Aristio, John the Presbyter, not the Apostle, Pathinius, Melito, Hegesippus, Tatian, Apollinaris, and Commodian. And if, if you knew anything about early church history, you would say that's a who's who of church leaders during that time. They were all pre-millennial. Dr. Wayne House, in his work on the Antonicene Church, he cited an earlier church historian to make the case for the dominance of premillennialism in the time after the apostles. House writes this, and he quotes an older theologian. In 1681, Thomas Burnett, royal chaplain to King William III of England, wrote this. The historical evidence indicates that Kiliasm, premillennialism as we call it today, was the predominant belief of the church of the first three centuries. And to make few words of it, we will lay down this conclusion that the millennial kingdom of Christ was the general doctrine of the primitive church from the time of the apostles to the Nicene Council inclusively. Contrast this with the amillennial theologian Cornelius Venema who says this, quote, Some defenders of premillennialism will even go so far as to argue that it has been the predominant view of the Christian church throughout the centuries. Now that's a slippery statement. Because remember I showed you last time that during the, uh, mid- the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, premillennialism took a dive because the Roman Catholic Church was in control of everything. To my knowledge, no premillennial theologian has made the argument that premillennialism has been dominant all the way through church history. What they have argued, and I'm arguing, is that in the first three centuries of the church, premillennialism was absolutely dominant it, to the point of being a monopoly. All the way until Augustine, when the influence of Plato began to influence how we study the Bible. I've tried to read our honorable spiritual opponents on this issue, and Cornelius Venema, in his explanation about the Antonicene era, he gives one paragraph and lists four prominent pastors that are premillennial, and if you read him, you get the definite impression that premillennialism was just some sort of backwoods thing that about four people believed. So that takes us back to the death of the apostles, but what about during the lifetime of the apostles? What does that record show? Well, this is where it gets really exciting because we have our most reliable and authoritative record, and that's the New Testament itself. And so what about premillennialism in the apostolic age, the New Testament times? And obviously, this in itself is a huge study, which we'll come back to later, but I just want to touch on a few important people. How about Mary, the mother of Jesus? In Luke 1, 32 and 33, Mary is told concerning the child Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. Now, in light of normal Jewish expectation, how is Mary going to interpret this? The only option is that she would interpret this declaration that her son would sit on the throne of David on this earth. The thought of David's throne somehow being in heaven or that the kingdom is actually spiritual and it's not visible, that, that wouldn't have even occurred to her. That, nobody believed that. When the angel told her, your son will sit on the throne of David, she would have thought, in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. How about Christ himself? That's obviously a huge topic, but just a little sample here. A couple of them. In Matthew 20, beginning of verse 20, the mother of James and John asked for special privileges for her sons in the coming kingdom on earth. And they thought the kingdom was coming soon, and so mama's coming to make sure that her boys get a good spot. Her request was denied, but not because she got the details of the kingdom wrong but because the father had reserved for himself the choice of the highest officials in the kingdom. And in fact, this would have been a glorious opportunity for Jesus to say, hey, the kingdom is spiritual in nature. This is not me reigning on the earth, so what you're asking for really doesn't make any sense. That would have been the perfect opportunity. But he didn't. In Luke 22, beginning in verse 29, Jesus told the twelve that they would sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He was declaring as the king of Israel that he was replacing the current apostate leadership. He was firing the current leadership of the Jews. He spoke of literal thrones, literal governing responsibilities. How about the apostle Paul? Paul addressed the possibility of God rescinding his promises to Israel as a nation and casting them away forever. And his answer to this question he posed of himself, Romans 11.1 Has God rejected His people? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. How about the Apostle John? Some people say, well, where do you come up with your outline of premillennialism? Well, you just get it from the book of Revelation. If you take the book of Revelation at face value, what do you get? You get a time of great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the binding of Satan, the deliverance and blessing of the saints of God, a righteous holy government on earth for a thousand years, final judgments, new heaven and new earth, in that order. There's premillennialism. We could save another 134 messages and this would be it. Here's one thing I wanted to, to bring up. The New Testament covers every conceivable theological error. It prepares us, and it's, it's relevant to this very day to prepare us for every type of error. Errors concerning the deity of Christ. Errors concerning the humanity of Christ. Errors concerning the Trinity. Errors concerning the church. The New Testament is filled with warnings, as I mentioned this morning, to not deviate from the doctrine that's given in the New Testament. And we get so many warnings. Read through Colossians. Uh, read through First uh, and Second Timothy. Read through Second Thessalonians. All the warnings about not deviating from sound doctrine. How many warnings about premillennialism, if it is an error, are there in the New Testament? Zero. The absence of warning about premillennialism screams loudly in the New Testament. Dr. John Walvoord wrote in his assessment of New Testament premillennialism, he said, 
It's incredible that if the Jews in the early church were in such serious error in their interpretation of the Old Testament and in their expectation of a righteous kingdom on earth following the second coming, that there should be no corrective, that all the evidence should confirm rather than deny such an interpretation. The general context of the New Testament is entirely in favor of the premillennial viewpoint. The amillennial interpretation has not one verse of positive testimony in the New Testament and can be sustained only by spiritualizing the prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, I know that the night is young and we've gone back as far as we can. We've gone back to the New Testament. So that's as far as we can go. Right? No. When Jesus was ministering on earth, the Jews to whom he ministered had an eschatology. They had a belief about what was going to happen. They had an expectation of the end times. What were the Jewish eschatological expectations in the New Testament times and a couple of hundred years before Christ? Or, to put it this way, when you said the kingdom of God to a Jew... What did that mean to him? Well, a quote from George Eldon Ladd. He says this, Every church father of the first two centuries who touches it all upon the subject of the millennium does so to a firm belief in the literal millennium. There is not one single amillennialist or postmillennialist in the early history of the church with the exception of Caius of Rome around 200 AD until the times of Origen and Augustine. That's when the, the, the uh, uh, allegorical method began to gain some traction. And he goes on to ask this question. Dr. Ladd does. How is this uniform presence of premillennialism in the early church to be accounted for? It is either the natural and true interpretation of Revelation 20 and therefore the heritage of the early church from the apostles, or it must be due to an erroneous interpretation which crept into the thinking of Christians immediately after apostolic times? This is a great question. The answer given from amillennialism is that yes, immediately after the death of the apostles, the entire church was in total error. Everybody went down the wrong road instantly. This view is represented by an amillennial theologian named O.T. Alice, A-L-L-I-S. He wrote a book called Prophecy in the Church. And he concluded that basically the entire early church wholesale completely missed the boat because they were taking their views from non-scriptural Jewish and Jewish Christian writings, such as books like Enoch and and uh, Esedris and the Book of Jubilees, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Psalms of Solomon, and the Apocalypse of Baruch. And so here's the logic. The logic is this. Well, since those books have never been accepted as Scripture, everything in them is a lie, especially the premillennialism. We're never claiming that those books are Scripture, but they are accurate history. We are claiming in those books and every Old Testament theologian will affirm this, that they accurately represent the theological position of the Jews during the time of Christ. What are these writings? These are writings done primarily in the two centuries before Christ. They greatly influenced the view of the kingdom of God held by Jews in Jesus' day. They have some fancy names. There's two major collections called the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. The Apocrypha is still included in the Roman Catholic 
Bible. It's never been universally accepted by the church. It's not considered scriptural at all. These books are universally understood, though, to be our greatest source of Jewish thought in New Testament times. And so I just want to give you one example. We delve too far in this, then I'm going to lose you. One book in particular called the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees is a Jewish commentary on Genesis and the first 12 chapters of Exodus. It's all it is. It's commentary. It's sometimes also called the Apocalypse of Moses. The author is unknown, but he's clearly Jewish because the main focus of the book explores how the end times will be brought about by obedience to the law. He is definitely Pharisaical in nature because he includes in the law the oral traditions about the law. But how does Jubilees describe the end times? Let me read you a section. God's sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity. And the Lord will appear to the eyes of all and all will know that I am the God of Israel and the father of all the children of Jacob and king on Mount Zion for all eternity. And Zion and Jerusalem shall be holy. The heavens and the earth shall be renewed and all their creation according to the powers of heaven and according to all the creation of the earth until the sanctuary of the Lord shall be made in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and all the luminaries be renewed for healing and for peace and for blessing for all the elect of Israel and that thus it may be formed that day and unto all the days of the earth. In other words, the Lord is coming to the earth visibly. He's building a new temple in Jerusalem. He's gathering Israel for peace and prosperity that all the earth may know who God is. That's what the average Jew believed in Jesus' day. In the longest section, chapter 23, the author poetically gives an account, and this is, this is worth the dive. He gives an account of two major events. First, a time of deep trouble and tribulation. Remember, this is just a commentary on the Old Testament. A time of deep trouble and tribulation, and then a time of great peace and prosperity. Listen to his time of deep trouble. And they will use violence against Israel and transgression against Jacob and much blood will be shed upon the earth. And there will be none to gather, none to bury. In those days they will cry aloud and call and pray that they may be saved from the hands of the sinners, the Gentiles, but none will be saved. And the heads of the children will be white with gray hair and the child of three weeks will appear old like a man of 100 years and their stature will be destroyed by tribulation and oppression. And then there's a turn. The book of Jubilees says, and in those days the children will begin to study the law and seek the commandments and return to the paths of righteousness. What do we know that as? We know that as looking upon him whom they have pierced. Right after this terrible time of trouble, the book continues, and the days will begin to grow many and increase among the children of men till their days draw nigh to 1,000 years and to greater number of years than before was the number of days. There will be no old man nor one who is not satisfied with his days for all will be as children and youths and all their days they will complete and live in peace and enjoy and there will be no Satan nor any evil destroyer for all their days will be days of blessing and healing and at that time the Lord will heal his servants. They will rise up and see great peace and drive out their adversaries and the righteous will see and be thankful and rejoice with joy forever and ever and will see all their judgments and all their curses on their enemies 
Then their bones will rest in the earth and their spirits will have much joy and they will know it is the Lord who executes judgment and shows mercy to hundreds and thousands and to all that love Him. Now, let me just just summarize that. There's a time of deep trouble before the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth. Where do all these passages, where do all these beliefs come from? Well, the book of Jubilees quotes passages like Isaiah 26, Jeremiah 22, Daniel 12, Hosea 13, Micah 4. And of course, the book of Jubilees leaves out one major detail, that Messiah has come, that He's reigning. It wouldn't be a revival of keeping the law that provides entrance into the kingdom, but looking upon Him who they have pierced and coming to saving faith in this Messiah, Jesus Christ. What did the Jews believe when Christ was there? They believed that a kingdom was coming to this earth. Dr. Ladd summarizes this way. This kingdom in Jubilees will see God take His sanctuary in Jerusalem on Mount Zion to dwell forever among His people Israel. Mount Zion will be the means of purifying all the earth from all uncleanness forever. The heavens and the earth and all things therein contained will be renewed. This expectation is based upon such prophecies as Isaiah 65 and 66. The character of the kingdom is vividly pictured and described largely in terms of physical well-being. The chief feature will be longevity. Men will begin to live for a thousand years and to enjoy eternal youth. Evil will be purged. The enemies of Israel will suffer the curses which the righteous have heaped upon them. It is clearly a kingdom of Israel. So over the past two messages, I'm trying to prove to you that what you believe is not mythological and it's not novel, it's not new, it's not the exception. It is what Christ believed. It is what everyone that Christ ministered to already believed. Now don't you think if amillennialism was true that Jesus would have taken up the banner to correct that error? But He didn't. He could speak to the Jews about the coming kingdom. He could simply say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they all knew what he was talking about. They all knew the same thing. I promised you that I would show you an application that would demonstrate the immediate value of premillennialism. And it's really quite simple. And it's, it's actually very astounding to me. Going back to the Antonicene years, the death of the apostles to the Council of Nicaea in 325. Those years coincide almost exactly with the time of great persecution, which was only briefly halted by the Edict of Milan by the Roman Emperor Constantine in 313. Almost exactly the same time period. During those 250 years or so, those two and a half centuries, the church underwent tremendous persecution. And what was it that buoyed their hope? What was it that gave them such tremendous confidence? What was it that helped them to remain steadfast? It was their belief that Christ could return to set up His kingdom on this earth at any moment. That's what held them. It was their premillennialism. If you're a millennial, I dare you to go back to, say, 250 A.D., when your family has just been murdered by those who hate Christians and tell them, oh, the kingdom of Christ is happening now on earth, they would say, no, it isn't. No way. 
Amillennialism leaves you with the question, if the kingdom is now, why does it feel like the kingdom? Why are most wicked men given power? Why is it that every time we have an election, we seem to have to choose between the worst and the very worst? Why, why can't we have great men? Why can't we have godly men? Why can't our, our next election be a, a choice between ten men who love the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the kingdom isn't now. The kingdom is coming. And for the believers in the early church, they clung to the hope living under the oppression of Romans that were murdering Christians by the millions that the kingdom of Christ was still on its way. Amillennialism leaves you with the question, if the kingdom is now, why doesn't it feel like the kingdom? Or to put it, as a Jew would put it, if this is the kingdom, where's the king? Where's the king? I find comfort in knowing that the king is coming. I find comfort in knowing that my death and subsequent going to heaven is just the beginning, the beginning of glory. That's just going into the locker room. The game is about to begin after that. During your times of suffering, one of my hopes is that you learn to automatically think on the future, to think on the kingdom, to drive through our town here, and and, and we live in a decent little town for the most part, but you know that it's still riddled with crime and murder. To, to drive through our town and just with a smile know there will be a day when there's not a single bad guy on the streets. Not one. There will be a day when all the farmers around here are sweating bullets trying to keep up with the fact that their crops are growing so fast they can't keep up with it. That day is coming. After explaining the rapture and resurrection of the saints to the Thessalonian church, Paul exhorted them to do something with this knowledge of their future. What were they to do with this? Was it just a a dry theological discussion? No, he told them to do something. And what he told them to do, this is my exhortation to you as well. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. With what words? Oh, my body's hurting. or, or Oh, I have this tragedy in my life. The kingdom is coming. Oh, this earth is so painful. My family's not doing what I want them to do. I am part of the glorious kingdom of Christ to come. Oh, I didn't anticipate having this disease. I I asked the Lord, give me 99 other diseases, not this one, and this is the one he gave me. Someday, all will be well and your body will be perfect. Oh, I can't stand to watch the news anymore. It seems like all the bad guys get off and all the good guys are being hammered. Someday, all justice will be done. Oh, if only God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Someday it will. Someday it will. I find comfort in that. I find joy in that. This is not a dry theological discussion. This is how you wake up tomorrow morning with a smile. Maybe today is the day. Isn't that a great thought? Let's pray together. Our Father, maybe today is the day. Maybe tomorrow is the day. In the meantime, our Lord... We ask you, God, to help us to live faithfully. You've commanded us, be holy, for I am holy. You've commanded us to love one another. You've commanded us to humbly obey, to submit to those who are in authority over us as an act of worship of Christ, as submitting unto you. 
And so I pray, Lord, that as we look upward and look beyond this time, that we would also take Paul's admonition to do the simple things, to live quiet lives, to work with our hands, to husbands love their wives, to wives submit to, their, to your husbands and children to obey your parents, slaves to obey your masters, church members to obey your elders, to do all things with propriety and with humility, keeping one eye on the horizon for that day when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are left will be taken up to be prepared for a period of time before we return with our Savior, our conquering Savior, riding the glorious white horse to victory when He lands on the Mount of Olives and with a shout and with a word defeats His enemies and causes bloodshed for hundreds of miles around. Defeating His enemies, gathering those who have survived and judging those who have known Him and who have not executing judgment instantly on all who have been false believers, on all who have faked their knowledge of Christ, sending them to wait 1,000 years while a glorious kingdom of Christ is established and while the resurrected immortal saints who have come from heaven with Christ reign with Christ on earth over those mortal saints who begin having children and populating the earth once again. Satan bound. The earth gloriously changed. Jerusalem is the highest mountain on the earth. Glorious new peace in our creation. The deserts blossoming. Rivers flowing. Forests growing. Cities being built up with righteous men reigning over them. And then Christ will release Satan one last time for one last quickly put down rebellion. Final judgment. The sweeping away of the old heavens and the old earth. And the bringing in of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride prepared for her husband as we enter into the final state. I pray that these thoughts would give us hope and buoy our spirits in the dark times that lay before us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.